0: So I went to an outcast concert at university of Virginia after I got drafted. And, um, so some people at, at UVA caught wind that I was there, me and my, like me and my guys from BC. And so they invited us on stage when they were doing a, were doing that concert and then we were hanging with them backstage and then off campus. And, um, I was wasted, just totally, totally wasted. <laughs> and, um, and I was wasted the next day. I had a severe hangover when I met with the Patriots, but I'm I'm just to this day, I'm just thinking to myself, how did I not screw that up? Cause I could have easily like screwed it up. There's no way that Mr. Kraft didn't know. I like, I reeked of alcohol, you know, when I did my press conference, did so, anyone say
1: you smell like a fucking brewery? Yeah, Big, or
0: anything? Cat, Big cat was like, we were standing on stage with, with, uh, with Pete Carroll and Mr. Kraft and, and uh, Big Cat's like, dude, you really, you really party last night. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I went a little overboard last night, but I'm here. I'm Are eight. you talking Big Cat like, like the defensive lineman? No, I'm talking about I, like I called
1: Andy Cashmore, Big Cat. Oh, like, you called? Oh, okay, all right, because we've yeah, l- I've yeah, lost I track call- of all the Big Cats. So yeah, yeah, Cashmore is telling
0: you yeah. you you're hungover. Yeah, think about that. Like Andy Cashmore is telling me like dude you are like wasted like you reek of alcohol you're wasted so yeah it was uh it was pretty bad but you know that just comes with the territory i guess
1: today is a massive podcast a lot of hard work has gone on to part one of three parts of draft day stories uh today we're going to talk draft with chris sims but we're going to do draft stories with sims damian woody danny cannell trent dilfer and dr J. It's Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla Podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's french fries. Changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a french fry from McDonald's unless you're eating my french fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. I'm excited about today, so I want to get right to it. We've got life advice at the end. We have our draft day stores, as we mentioned. This is a new thing that we've been taping now for for a while but the first installment comes out today so we're going to do like real draft talk with Sims on all the quarterbacks because he's been Chris Sims has been really good on this and Saruti pointed it out to me so we'll share that with Sims and give him some credit because nobody likes giving anybody credit uh, for doing something good uh, especially in the media but the um, Woody's always a great storyteller Danny and then uh Dr. J as well because Dr. J had a really complicated deal there and prepare to be bummed out if you're a fan of a couple different NBA franchises so uh, NBA 10 minutes or less light slate last night so uh, let's uh let's start the timer the Celtics have won again they're in fifth place tied with Atlanta Atlanta has the tie break right now so they're both 30 and 26 when Bill and I did the last Sunday pod the last one that we did we'll be doing a Sunday pod this Sunday it was hey out of this group of these bottom east teams that are still in playoff contention who do you think has the best chance to make any kind of noise and I think we both begrudgingly said Boston strictly on talent even though we didn't really like the team all that much They're six and seven and so I'm hearing they've turned things around uh let's just run through that quick the Lakers who don't have any players who despite not having any of their top two players and, and missing Dennis at times as well uh they have a better record than you would think but the Celtics winning that one you know look they beat the Lakers in LA great they beat Portland in Portland Portland can't defend what boston does portland is not very good against good teams they beat denver in denver denver was the better team for three well basically almost three quarters and then had the worst stretch of their season in that game the celtics needed overtime and 50 something from tatum to beat the timberwolves they beat the knicks by two they lost to the sixers they beat the hornets uh with one of their first games without hayward on top of Lamelo, and then they beat the rockets Six of seven is really nice. It's great they're over 500. Um, I do not think that they have figured it out yet. I think it is the opponent. I think when you, need, when you need overtime and that kind of number from Tatum to beat the Timberwolves, you still may have problems. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Uh, how was that? Was that under 10 minutes? See, that's the thing is we never said it's going to be long. We just said it's, it's 10 minutes or less. And that was definitely less than 10 minutes, even though it usually always goes over.
2: Yeah, if you keep it going for another 10 seconds we'll be at 2 minutes.
1: Yeah, we're not. We're done. I just wanted to share that because it was a very very slow night in the NBA and we have so much other stuff going on. I just want to throw that out there because I I've, I've had some um I I've, I've I've listened to a few people talk about him just going like, "Yeah, you know, they're starting to put things together. It the record is nice and that part is great, but I think sometimes it's the schedule and and I'm I'm just not ready to trust them." Okay. There you go. Let's talk to Chris Sims. Chris Sims joins us Unbuttoned Podcast, Sunday Night Football, NBC, Pro Football Talk. Uh, he is, I don't know what the deal is. You catch a lot of shit for your draft analysis. I, I don't, and then, you know, Saruti, my producer, was like, hey, did you see this? And you go through your record. You had Mahomes number one in 17. Is that correct? That okay. is correct, yeah. You had Lamar first, which I think is really impressive. And you had Rosen last. Um, and you had Allen
3: second. Right, and I ended up actually even switching that and making Allen one. And I'll, I'll even say, this is the last time too, I made Allen one and moved Lamar down the list a little bit and I'll never make this mistake again and moved him only because I had so many of my NFL friends questioning me to where I thought, wait, is there something wrong with this guy that I don't know? I don't get to meet this guy, these guys, all that. You know?" So I wondered and I ended up pushing him down at the very end. Because I got such violent backlash from people in the NFL about it that I just went, maybe there's more to this that I don't know. But I'll never do that again, and I'll never make that mistake yet. Yeah.
1: Okay, so Kyler won. That one was a little bit easier, but I don't want to make this sound like I'm taking credit away from you. And then on top of everything else, you had two of fourth. So I, I got to tell you, that's an incredible track record for a position that I've now for years gone. All the stuff that matters, arm strength, forget it. Size is nice, not mandatory. If you run first, pass, second, yes, that's still a problem, but I think some of the physical things, like if you're watching a basketball player, it's not all physical stuff, but you can see things where you go, okay, I think quarterback has been misleading forever evaluating the wrong things, and it's still a 50-50 proposition with busts in the first round. You'll see guys you know, five deep in a class, and you're like, all right, two or three of these guys are going to be in another team in a couple years, and it seems ridiculous at the time. So let's get back to the roots of it for you. What is it that you're seeing? How do you do this because you've had a really good run here now?
3: Thanks. Well, I, you know, I think the first thing is you're right. You can't just go on one thing, right? Like, Oh, he runs really good. So he's definitely going to be a good quarterback or his arm is so powerful. That definitely is going to just make him good at everything else. No, you got to take it all into account. Right. I mean, it's not just about one thing, but I will say at the very base level, you know, first off, yeah, I look for pure talent, like elite skills, things like that. That's where I sat there with Mahomes, and there's like, Back in that draft where I went, whoa, like some of these throws he making are like eye-popping. Holy crap, off his back foot, you know, 40-yard crossing route on the money, you know, uh, leaning to the right, 30-yard throw across the field. So those, I do look for that stuff off the bat. Then you start to go, all right, now can we fill in all the other things that are needed for the position? You know, is he a good decision maker? Is he accurate? you know, all the time, as far as consistent, the guys open, the guys open by two feet. Does he throw it in the right spot? All of that type of stuff. And then what I'm really big into Ryan too, is yeah, one, I want to see the quarterback take advantage of all that's there to be had, right? All that's there to be had. Like, Hey, if there's a guy wide open down the middle for an 80 yard touchdown, I, I want to see an 80 yard touchdown. I don't want to see a, 50 yard pass that was underthrown and now the guy gets tackled at the 20 yard line and we have to settle for a field goal 3 yards 3 plays later. Right? To me those are things I look at, but I'll say the other thing that I's I'm really big into too is okay, now when nothing is there, what are you going to do? Right? The protection's not great, nobody's open. All right, now what? And to me that's where the great ones have, you know, separate themselves. That's why Rodgers is Rodgers and Josh Allen and Mahomes and all that because even when it's not great pass protection and nobody's open you go oh well look there they go they got out of the pocket they manipulated the coverage and the defense really won the play but the quarterback was so great he ended up throwing a 30-yard laser because of his ability and doing things like that too so making more of what's there to be had too is also big in, in kind of how I evaluate these quarterbacks as well.
1: Okay, so instead of like looking at the top guys where you know Rogers is going to keep plays alive, Brady's—I right. think Brady's mobility in the pocket is actually what set him apart from everyone. You know, because if you didn't really understand it, and I only understood because I saw it all the time. I was like, oh, okay, so I get it. Like, there's there's yeah. a difference there because presence in the pocket. Like some of these kids are coming in with clean pockets the entire time. The way the offensive lines are set up with these spreads, and yet. You know, it's yeah. I, there were, there are were other players that I'd be completely dismissive of. I remember the first time I saw Chase Daniel in person with Missouri's offense before everybody was kind of doing versions of what was going on. And you right. see the spreads, and you see him just shotgun, one pad of the football, and it's out. It was like kind of one read to one side, one route, and I go to McShay. I remember we were there for Texas, Missouri, and I'm going – Well, this shit isn't going to (laughs) work. Like this is this is uh, this is like backyard practice what they're doing now. Granted, they're putting up a ton of points, but then we've seen guys come out of some of this stuff and be be good pros. So I don't know. I'll I'll admit I don't think I've ever been more lost or confused in trying to figure out like, hey, that guy on Saturday is going to be really good on Sunday.
3: Well, don't be don't be don't get caught up in stats and wins and losses, right? You know that's when I no problem,
1: no problem because that's never been a.
3: No, and it shouldn't be, you know, that's where people get lost as far as I think some of their bias and what they see, they look at the stats first and then they watch the film and I go, I don't look at the stats at all. I just watch the film for what it is because the stats can lie to you in a lot of different ways. So, you know, I think that's like one thing I would say, and then don't get caught up in wins and losses. You know, that's another thing too. You know, when I hear like an evaluator start off an evaluation with he's a winner, That's usually when I go, well, then there must be some other things missing in his game because if that's what we're going to go with and you can't tell me something like tangible and physical that he does on the field that makes him special, this other stuff you're talking about is just a bunch of like team bull crap you've made up in your own mind. Like John Elway was four and seven his his last year in college. So was Patrick Mahomes. They were winners. They can't overcome everything else for their crappy teams they were on. And that's the same with Josh Allen. So you have to take into account too of like, all right, like to what you just said, what's the offense? How many easy throws is it lending to him all the time? You know, what are they asking of him? Is it realistic to expect results? Are the receivers getting open? Are we seeing protection to think he can like overcome some of these issues with the team and all that? And I think that's at times where people will get like lost in that a little as well. And that's where you can get lost in like what you're talking about. Some of these quarterbacks on the dominant teams, and everything just looks so easy. And it's like a highlight show you're watching there. Um, But it doesn't always necessarily translate to life in the NFL. And life in the NFL, going back to something you just said, you know, about Brady and all that, again, yeah, we love movement and the ability to extend plays. But the final four quarterbacks in the NFL were all like guys that could stand in the pocket and dice you up if they needed to. Allen, Mahomes, Rodgers. And, and Brady and really three out of the four. Yeah, they can get out of the pocket and do things like that. But either way, the name of the game is still in the pocket, making throws, you know, in the in, in, in tight pockets or sliding like you explained with Brady. Those are the guys that are, you know, continually successful year after year after year. And that's what I'm looking for more than anything at the quarterback position.
1: Okay, so I want to talk about this class, but I'd love for you to talk to us the way you talk to other guys that have played um, or the guys that are evaluating. Because when you say... I mean, you're absolutely right about the winning thing. It's kind of like my gold medal Hall of Fame thing with NBA guys. Like, if the second thing you're telling me, he's he's an Olympic gold medalist, then it means (laughs) his resume isn't that good. And with Tebow coming out, it was immediately winner, unquantifiable stuff. I'm like, well, hey, what about all the other stuff, though? Okay? And so I'm with you when you say that stuff. So, like, we can get into the Trevor Lawrence part of it, where he feels like he's one of the cleanest prospects that we've seen I've seen him in person Andrew Luck is the last guy to go back to I remember watching Luck in the comeback game against USC on the sideline going if this guy isn't good then I give up okay because he threw a huge pick he came back to the sideline he was motherfucking himself and he couldn't wait to get back onto the field and right. Take the game over again, and I went okay. I'm, I'm I'm not that I needed that moment, but it was just another moment to his deal. And with Trevor, if we start there, like are there things we had? We had Dilferon it was like, look, he's a little long. He's a little long with his throw. Right, uh, he right. was bringing up some stuff. So is he as clean a prospect as he's talked about?
3: No, I don't think so. You know, listen, I, I got Zach Wilson as the number one quarterback in the draft, I think, because of some of that. But it's not an indictment on Trevor Lawrence. You know, that's where I, I do want to, you know, people love to hate on me or, you know, oh, you're you're doing this for clickbait or you're a shock jock. Like, no, I want to be right. I don't give a damn about clicks or anything like that. You know, the, Trevor Lawrence is certainly worthy of being the number one pick. There's a lot of positives about everything he brings to the table. You know, first off, his arm is elite. There's no doubt about that. Size is a skill. His size allows him to throw the ball over the line of scrimmage, see things over the middle that some of the other quarterbacks can't. Just like you saw with Justin Herbert this past year. Doesn't matter. People around him, ah, doesn't matter. I'm a big guy. Oh, there's a 40-yard rifle down the middle of the field. There's, there's that. And then, of course, he's athletic as hell, too, for somebody his size. And then has all the things you talked about, you know, with a Tim Tebow. He's a good leader. He's played in a lot of big games and all of that stuff. But just like I'll say, when I evaluated him, Ryan, yeah, I came away going, hey, he's awesome. He's worthy of the number one pick. I got no doubt about that. But the film isn't as good as I remembered on TV. And there are, I think, Trent Dilper, what he says yes, he can be a little long. He can be a little inconsistent with his mechanics altogether. And he can miss a few more throws then I think we realize, like, if I sat down with you and we watched film, I'd go, look, I mean, here's a slam dunk five-yard out route. He should hit it. He didn't hit that. Here's another play he didn't hit, you know. But it gets lost in translation because then the next play, it's a, a draw play to ETN and he runs for 30 yards. Or it's a screen pass to a receiver and he gets the first down. And I'm not trying to say there's not a lot of positives. He does. I'm just saying it wasn't a slam dunk, consistent, awe-dropping throwing of the football that maybe I was quite expecting when I turned on the film that way. And that's why I made him my number two quarterback instead of my number one. But man, there's still a lot to like about his football game.
1: Okay, why is Wilson number one?
3: Wilson, for like, you know, first off, I see like Rogers and Mahomes when I see Wilson. Wilson's arm's the best arm in the draft. In in, in any capacity really. You know, whether that's just pure power, like, hey, I got to stand in the pocket and throw a 20-yard in-cut and I need to throw a laser and it's got to be on the money. Nobody does that better than Zach Wilson, let alone he can do all that stuff on the move or with like no pocket at all. Oh, wait, people are around me. I can't really get my feet in the right spot. And just like a Mahomes or Rogers can just be like, boom, and do it with his upper body and figure out how to still throw it accurately and with like a lot of power and pace. So I think that's the thing I look at He was in a somewhat of a pro-style offense, you know, going through reads and going through the offense itself. I thought really him and Mac Jones led all of these guys as far as their ability to process and go through a lot of reads on the offensive side of the ball. And then the last thing is what we hit on earlier, Ryan. I mean, when nothing's there, nobody makes more happen than Zach Wilson. Nobody's open. I got to get out of the pocket. He is going to do something to manipulate coverage or make some great throw with his arm that is going to make something happen. And and that's why I gave him the edge over Trevor Lawrence.
1: I don't know what to believe on the Wilson part of this. I don't want to turn this into like the Connor Cook wasn't a captain yeah, that's thing, cool. which, which I thought was a legitimate deal. I mean, if you're not a captain and you're a quarterback on a team, that's weird. It's just actually right. weird to not be one. I hear you Just it, get yeah. it by default. Is there anything going on with Zach's personality? Are we just talking about a younger kid? I mean, I think the thing is, is it comes down to this is like, is he a dick or is he a quarterback? Because I would ask anybody that's like, oh, this quarterback was like, have any of you guys gone to high school? The good quarterback in high school was just, he had to be a dick. I'm sure you were probably a dick.
3: I was not. No, (laughs) I, I, I was not. I was not. I was always a good guy that was willing to be like, you know, I would stand up to the bullies for bullying guys that, you know, couldn't do that. That's the guy I was. I think that's what a quarterback is.
1: I like hearing that. I was just, I was messing with you a little bit. No, I know. know. But
3: I think that there's a lot of people out there that that's their perception of a football player sometimes, right? It's like, oh, he was a bully meathead. No, I would say that was for Johnny Tryhard, high school guy. The NFL pro players are not like that. They were confident in their strength and their manhood and all that. They didn't need to bully like, you know, some some science geek or math major or something like that. But no, I mean, listen, I understand. I don't pay attention to a whole lot of the off the field stuff. I don't get a chance to meet these guys. I know a little bit about all of them. And, you know, listen, with Zach Wilson, I've heard enough from people I trust that the guy's just, he's all in on football, whether that's driving, you know, eight or 10 hours every weekend to go work with John Beck and do all that. Hey, I've heard like, hey, he's from a rich family. Okay. So, you know, he's a rich kid. Well, you know, I don't know. I was rich, you know, I worked hard. Peyton Manning and Eli Manning were rich. There's a lot of other guys out there that I could go through and go, they grew up nice. It didn't like take away their edge of wanting to be great, you know? And, and don't forget too. The other aspect is, yeah, uh, I wanted to keep my great life going. So I was, I saw my dad and what he did and I was like, I want to be able to buy the things I want to buy when I get up. So if I have to work or get older, I got to work hard at football to do that. Fine. So be it. So no. And then also Ryan, I'm sorry for the long answer. Like with BYU, it is a little bit of a different school. You know, you got like guys there that are 25, 26 years old, you know, 27 at times because of the way that school is laid out. So I don't make too much of it. I can tell on film, his team thinks he's special when he makes great throws or makes great plays. You see offensive linemen or the sideline, like pointing at them and doing stuff. Like you're the man. How did you do that? And that's kind of what I go off of. So I guess I'm not worried about all the other stuff, is what I'm saying.
1: And I hope you know. I probably should have said this at the top. I'm not bringing it up as if it's this major concern. I just feel yeah, yeah, like hear, little hear. hints, like, and then no one follows right. through with it. You know what I mean? And I know right. you're more open about stuff. We're all you're like, oh, you know, nah, 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 and you just go, okay, well then. You can't do that to a kid. Like, say say what's on your mind. But the rich family thing I've heard a couple times, and it's just, it's just so funny what would be used against you until it doesn't work as no a critique. Doubt. Because then no right. one ever brings it up again. And you're like, no, you're just – it's something that sounds good in the evaluation. Like, oh, you know, like Josh Rosen. Is Josh Rosen not a pro quarterback because he came from a great family? Or did it just not yeah. work out for Josh Rosen? So right, a lot of that stuff right. becomes – At least in this case, it's not after the fact, but prior to the fact. So I I think it's a lot like Baker. If you didn't like Baker, you weren't going to like Baker. You probably didn't watch as much Zach Wilson for those listening to this. But if you went into it not wanting to like him, then maybe some of it would turn you off. But you're right about the teammate thing because Baker's teammates loved him. Baker's teammates still love him. So, uh, yes. you know, like, so that's way more important than what any talking head is going to say. Okay.
3: Right. Well, I mean, like to your point, just like one more thing, too, where it's, this is where I don't get the draft process, right? Like with BYU and Zach Wilson, it's about, oh, wait, always the negative I hear with him is like, you know, the competition, it's not that great. All right. It, that's the one side you get. But you never ever hear the other side of the story where I go. Well, yeah, but the quarterback for Ohio State, Alabama and Clemson got to go on the field and were always clearly the best team on the field and always knew that there was room for error because of that. And then the other thing, too, that just drives me crazy, it drives me crazy because like what you're saying, it's like, we'll use it against one guy. Oh, the competition's not great. But then I don't hear that conversation at all with Trey Lance up at North Dakota State. Like, that's not a point with him. And not that I I don't care about either one. I just hate in the media right now how it's like, we're going to use this as a negative for this guy, even though it's also for this guy, but we don't want to bring that up. So we're only going to bring it up for the one guy. And that drives me crazy. But now, you know, to to get back to your point,
1: you know, but I'm actually going to interrupt you though, because I'm glad you, you did this because when you were talking, Josh Allen, I didn't think Josh was great the first couple years in Buffalo, all right? Sure. And then this past year, we're talking MVP. Maybe you saw different things, and you thought it would lead to this. The credit to you. I did not see the turnaround. But my favorite Josh Allen video of anything that I watched was the Iowa game when they got their asses handed to him because he was so competitive in trying to make – they had no chance in that game. None. And he played his ass off, and the numbers are horrible. Right. And I was like, okay, now I kind of get it. So – So then where are you now with the rest of your rankings with Mac Fields and then Lance?
3: Well, you know, I got Mac Jones as number three. And listen, I didn't expect to. But like Mac Jones is incredibly accurate. He's great in the pocket. His arm is plenty good. It's, yeah, it's not elite, powerful, but it's every bit as good as Joe Burrows was last year. And I think it's the best I've seen for his diagnosing defenses and being able to read it and react as quick as anybody has ever seen other than Joe Burrow. That's Mac Jones, let alone, hey, listen, I know he's not an elite athlete, but going back to like what you said, I-, I could sit here and argue in the pocket itself, Yeah, he might be the best. I think Zach Wilson's the best, but Mac Jones is right there as far as those Brady type movement and hopping around and just subtle moves to slide step and still stay in a throwing position and put the ball on the money. So Mac Jones is my number three. Kellen Mond is my four. and I don't understand. Yeah, that shocks me. Yeah. I know. I well, Kellen Mond has it all. That when I look at Kellen Mond, I go elite arm. He played on a lesser team in the SEC week in and week out. He played NFL football for the last three years, and what I mean that was he had to throw the ball into really tight windows and had bad prote- pass protection in like every game. And he threw the ball with great accuracy. He can really make any throw. It's a quick release that's very powerful. And he's a great athlete. He really is. So that's why I looked at him and I just went, like, his film compared to Tua or Daniel Jones? Like, I'm taking Kellen Mond all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. But there's the hype's not there for him. I don't know why. He might sneak into the late first, but I think he's probably going to be at the top of the second round. Type of quarterback, and then I got Fields and Lance. All right, right let's there. stay with Mon.
1: Let's stay with all Mon right, because cool, if Mon cool, ends yeah. up being better, then I am going to be surprised because I've watched probably all of those A and M games, right? And it was, I think, straight up ugly in the beginning of his career, and sure. then this year they started turning it around. Um, but I always felt like there was it was just he would go missing for a quarter. You know, there would be stretches Whoa. where you're like, okay, now yeah. you're back to the guy that I don't really trust. I don't really trust. I, I said, and did, I don't know. Was it with you where he said, I was always kind of thinking and I was, I was always like yes. he played like a quarterback that was constantly worried about what they were going to say to him when he went back to the sideline. So I would Whoa. say, okay, yeah. all right. F- okay, fine. But does that mean you're going to get to the NFL and be more relaxed? <laughs> That doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Um, I I, I thought he was too inconsistent. I thought he was too inconsistent his entire career, even though he was better this last year.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, really this last year, you know, and again, I'm big into it where I'm not going to go too far back. And it like, I'm not, there's a big difference between when you're 18 and 21, right? I mean, it's a lot of growing mentally, physically, everything you do there too. And hey, listen, a little context too. You know, he took over a position, You know, at Texas A&M with a coach that coached, you know, Jameis Winston, right? So turnovers are an issue. And he started off his career throwing some interceptions and got death threats. So I'm sure that didn't help things either that way. But regardless, I hear those concerns. But also, like, this year, I mean, it was phenomenal play. It it, it really was. And, yeah, like, this is to where, you know, I'll say, like, those moments you say he disappears or do that. You know, those kind of things. Well, like, I think if you and I sat down together and we watched him, I went, okay, yeah, I know he's kind of disappeared, but here's three series in a row where I want to go, like, what do you want him to do here? The pass protections broke down so quickly. There's nobody open. There's no space. There's nothing to throw. And that's where I get into, like, you got to be realistic a little sometimes in the evaluation process to go, yeah, I want more there. I do. But. Is it realistic to really expect it here? It's kind of a no-win situation. I think there was a lot of that at Texas A&M. And I think, you know, again, he was on a lesser team in the SEC a lot. But as far as a leadability, man, I see it. I really do. And I'm a big fan. I know I'm alone in that one. And uh, I don't know. You hey, want me to go to the next ones?
1: No, you might. Look, you might be right. Obviously, we know, we know how there's going to be a guy drafted later in this that is better than the top guys that we're talking he's, about. I mean, it's just the he's way it that works. He's
3: Dak Prescott to me. And that's where I, I always self-evaluate, or I, I, I call it self-scout myself, because I'm still pissed that I didn't have Dr- Dak Prescott up in like the first-round conversation. And what really happened is I got lost in some of the bullshit. It was what, I, oh, he, the losses, and some of the games weren't that pretty. Yeah, because he's at Mississippi State playing teams ever way better than him. So some of the games don't look good, and I didn't just take it for what it is about the player a little bit and go, wait big strong moves well really never loses control of the football has big power in his arm like and the things I was docking him for at the time were really not Dak Prescott problems they were Mississippi State problems and that's where I'm saying that the Kellen Mond one and I'm going out on a limb on that one a little bit as we say so we'll see
1: I'd push back a little I mean the team almost made the playoff so it wasn't like we're talking about Vanderbilt yeah.
3: here yeah, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. You're right. Yeah, it, was, it was good. But I, where I would tell you, too, it was really good. And they don't beat Florida and teams like that unless they got a guy like Kellen Mond, who made so many big throws in some of those games, to where I go, there are just not a lot of guys in college football that could have done and made like made it happen the way he did that way. So, you know, we'll see. He's got some stiffness to his game. I wish he would play backyard football and scramble He's more very stiff. He's yes, very stiff. But to me, those are easier issues to fix than what I look at for some of the issues with Trey Lance and, and Justin Fields.
1: Okay. So then let's finish with those two guys then.
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, so uh, Justin, you know, uh, Justin Fields is the guy I got as five and really like, I would say this, Ryan, I'd probably, if I had to re-rank him right now, that'd probably be the one I'd switch. I'd probably make Trey Lance five and, and, uh, And Justin Fields, six. But Fields, listen, powerful arm. I get it. It's elite as far as the pure power of the the aspect of the arm. He's an elite athlete. There's no doubt about that, too. You know, so there's two elite traits to that, that game that he's got there. There's no doubt. But now we get into the throwing, the decision making, the pocket presence, all of that. I thought really he was probably the worst in the pocket out of all the quarterbacks when it just came to throwing the ball. He needs the most space out of all the quarterbacks. He has some true mechanical flaws that I just don't trust that you can fix. And I've seen them in both private, you know, both pro day workouts come out again. You know, he's very much of an elbow thrower. He does this every time, you'll see. And that leads to erratic throws and moments in the game where you just go that's got to be slam dunk like that's a touchdown on a five yard shallow cross route that we didn't even complete not let alone we we completed and didn't get the touchdown we're not even like the receiver can't touch the ball there's just way too many throws and decisions like that and then with the mechanical flaws and also he lets his feet get together and then like pushes off a mound at times like he's a baseball pitcher that stuff scares me. And I don't know if that is fixable. So that, that's where I question Justin Fields a little bit.
0: Okay.
1: Um, do Trey we have Lance. any? Yeah. I mean, I guess we just finished with Lance, so we'll get to your draft story.
3: Yeah. Uh, Trey Lance, I mean, I, I'm really more consistent of a thrower than Justin Fields. You know, got a really powerful arm, you know, and does have good feet. There's no doubt about that. Um. I think there is a lack of clubs in the bag is the first thing I'll say as far as every ball is just a rifle throw. There's not a lot of touch throws. He doesn't throw a great deep ball. Some of those things are an issue for him. So I think that's one thing I look at. You know, he has a little bit of a, he likes to swing his shoulder and then throw the ball and do that. That's great. But what I get worried about with that and where I see it come up on film a little bit is he'll all right, swing the shoulder. I think I'm going to throw there. Now he's got to get to the third read over the middle of the field. We don't have time to swing the shoulder and throw it again like that. That's one thing that bothers me about Trey Lance. There's a lot to like the way he runs all of that stuff too. But he was on a dominant team that he got to make a lot of just one read type of throws. And my biggest thing, Ryan, with him is like, It's a position we talk about all the time that you got to play and got to get reps at, and they barely threw the ball. He's barely ever had to play quarterback in a tight situation late in the game and have to drive his team down the field to throw the ball or do any of that, and to me, that scares me too. So that's why I got them towards the bottom of the list. They're tough evals. They really are. I might be wrong. We'll see. Uh, But I see the elite levels, but I just got questions too that don't add up to elite for me right now. As far as when we talk about the draft,
1: Chris, you actually get to be the first of this three-part series that we're doing here uh, about 15 interviews for guys. But since we have you, I, I think we'll start it this way. Everybody knows the the Texas story, which you could probably do an hour on anyway. Um, you come out, you still end up going last pick in the third round, so 97th overall in 2003 to Tampa. So give me the the best story in that process, the lead up, something you, you've shared with only intimate friends um, to, to kind of give us an understanding of what that deal was like for you?
3: Sure, sure. I mean, so my junior year, all right, just to give it a little bit of like back history, I was being told by teams in the NFL and everything like, hey, you know, you, you might be one of the first quarterbacks off the board. My junior year at the end of that year, I was like getting like, like my dad and, you know, my gonna be agent and all that were starting to go like, hey, you might, we might have to think about if you want to come out or do any of that. I went on to the big 12 championship game and threw three interceptions and that was squash, and that was over. We lost the game because of me, all right? No doubt about it. So there I went from being like, hey, you might be the first quarterback off the board to, hey, you're going back to college. All right, I go back to college. My senior year's good. We lose to Oklahoma again. I get the label like, Can't win the big game. That's all I ever hear. You know, Chris Sims can't win the big game. He's a choke artist, all that type of stuff. So, yeah, we get to the draft process. I'm in the year with Carson Palmer, Byron Leftwich, Rex Grossman, uh, Kyle Bowler, right? It's that group of guys. Pretty good quarterback class for the time. It's all like these potential first round quarterbacks. I'm just hoping I can be one of them, you know, and I know that there's those questions about me out there and all that. So, I, I get to the draft process and I'm really thinking I meet with the Raiders who had the last two picks of the first round that year. I go out there to visit them, Al Davis and everything. And Al Davis, he he pretty much tells me, Hey, if you're on the board of pick 31 and 32, there's a good chance we're going to take you. And I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. I'd love to go to the Raiders with Al Davis and all of this and, You know, there's, of course, the Ravens who need a quarterback, the Bears. I'm thinking, man, one of them's going to take me in the first round. Well, now we get to the draft. It's the night before the draft. And I come home from a little dinner with, like, two of my friends. And my mom was waiting for me in the kitchen. All right? And I could tell she's like, she's got to tell me something. She's a little disappointed. And she kind of looks at me, and she's like, oh, you know, well, you know, me and dad, we talk, we, we, you might slide in the draft. We're hearing you might slide in the draft. And I'm like, oh, whatever. I, I don't even care. I'm just brushing it off. Like, ah, we'll see tomorrow. I don't believe it. Whatever. So I have the draft day at my house. I got a bunch of friends that come over and I'm thinking this is going to be a great day. Well, we get to pick 31. I haven't gone. I'm pissed. I'm going, what? Kyle Bowler before me? What Are you kidding me? He threw more interceptions than touchdowns in college. Like, what? Just because he threw the ball through the goalpost on his knee, he got drafted. I'm, and I'm pissed. Rex Grossman, <laughs> same thing. I'm sitting there like Rex Grossman. I'm better than him, and I'm and, and no disrespect to these guys. Now I'm just giving you my honest. No, I'm sure. I'm sure
1: Bowler loves that evaluation. Just right? Kind of yeah, I'm
3: sure. I sure. I love actually <laughs> Kyle Bowler. He we, we became very good friends through the process. But so I'm just now it's. Al Davis and the Raiders come up, they don't they draft a, a pass rusher from Colorado and Nande Asamoan. And I'm like, oh no. Okay, what the hell's gonna happen? I wait a few picks in the second round. I can tell my agents got nothing going. No one's calling, nothing. I go, all right, I'm done. I'm going upstairs. Get, leave me alone. I go into my room and just put the TV on there. I don't want to be bothered. I tell my friends, leave it's over, the hell with it. I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't want you guys to sit here all day. And of course, that was when they did the first three rounds of the draft on the first day. So I sat there all day, and then all of a sudden, the phone rang, and old Chucky was on there. Hey, man, this is John Gruden. What you doing, man? I'm proud to let you know you're gonna be a Tampa Bay Buck, you know. And I'm pissed. And I'm like, oh man, that's great to hear, Coach. I'm pissed, but that's great to hear. Thanks. All that. All right, man. Just get ready to work when you come down here, okay, man? So that's my draft day story. It's a little bittersweet. Like it was a dream come true to play in the NFL, but it wasn't quite what I was expecting leading up to it and uh, certainly pissed me off a little bit.
1: Did the Dave Ragone pick just send you through a wall?
3: Through the fucking wall. Like, you know, it, it, through the wall, right? And, and you know, it just it's one of those things where you're like, what, what the hell happened here? Um, so yes, I got stuck there in Tampa Bay, which was a great experience because of course they had just won the Super Bowl. I got to learn from John Gruden and, uh, really by my second year had a chance to be the starter and was the starter a few games into my second season and I hurt my shoulder. And then, you know, my third year I got to take over and we made a little playoff run.
1: At the end, was it? Did you know it was over? Were you just trying to, did you want to stay and just get a check as long as you could? Or, cause I know that you were back with Tennessee and then they cut you right. and they brought you back in again. I'm just, well, some guys are like, look, I'll, I'll leave when I'm absolutely told I can't play. Or were you just over it?
3: No, I was like, I was dying to play my first year at a football. I mean, I cried like every Sunday. I mean, I'm not even lying. I, I cried at my house. I was in Nashville, Tennessee. I would sit there and be like, I can't believe this guy's in the NFL and I'm not even, this guy's starting and I'm not even in the NFL. I mean, just a lot of that stuff. Right. Um, but I, you know, my spleen injury, it was such a hard, like fight to get back and get back healthy and all of that. Uh, So I finally got back. I just never got that opportunity to really prove to everybody that I was back and like close to being what I was going to be. And I really, that's became my perception is that like, he's not the same guy as he was before the injury. And, you know, that last year I stayed ready in 2011, but I always told myself I was not going to be one of these guys that was just going to sit around and wait forever and let it totally dictate my life. So I stayed ready in 2011 but I started making calls to teams about my next step in life, about being a coach. And that's where I started to reach out to Belichick in New England. And when I didn't get signed in 2011, after that year, I got the job with the Patriots and worked for them in 2012.
1: One last follow-up then, because you yeah. did work for the Patriots on some of the basically just draft prep for the entire time. Right. Right. What's Bill's process like and, and why hasn't it been working that well lately?
3: Right. Like, I don't know Bill's total process, right? Bill is not going to, he wasn't worried about me, low level scout and telling me his process, nor was he going to let me in the room that had all like the big time information. I mean, and it's been a, a dra- decade
1: almost too, to be fair to Bill here. So, you know,
3: well, yes, well, right, right. And like, Hey, maybe it's, it's an England. awful
1: question. It might be a horrible question. So I
3: No, no, that. it's a great question. It, it, it really is. And it's new England. I mean, listen, only, there's only like three people up in that organization that really know what's going on like in all facets because Bill's not going to share it with everybody. You know, not everybody knows what Bill's thinking. I mean, their draft room, Ryan, it's literally like, he would go in there and like look around and like have his key and like unlock the door. And then a big metal garage door came up over the draft board. So you never even got to see that type of stuff. But like to just answer the question directly there, I mean, listen, no stone goes unturned up in New England. Nothing. They're the most detailed, hardworking organization at all in all of the NFL. And where I think they mess mess up a little bit as far as the draft is concerned I think they value smarts just a hair too much. That's where I would say would be my negative, you know, where it's like, Hey, we watched a hundred plays on this guy. Yeah. This one guy who's an awesome player, he did have two mental mistakes. This guy over here is a real good player, but had no mental mistakes. And I want, and you know, they favor the guy that made the no mistakes where I want to go. Yeah, but he left like 20 plays on the field that should have been touchdowns. And this guy over here, yeah, he had the two mistakes, but man, he made like 20 other plays that the other guy couldn't make for long touchdown runs or whatever. That would be my assessment on why they miss on some guys at times.
1: Check out the... Unbuttoned podcast with Chris Sims. You see him again on NBC and all of their coverage. And thanks a lot, man. It was fun to kind of sit down and talk with you about this. So I appreciate it.
3: No, always, always good talking to you, man. Uh, enjoy you, man. And thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me, buddy.
1: This episode is brought to you by Viore. It's time to ditch your old workout fit. Seriously, just let them go and try Viore clothing instead. Their active wear is unbelievable. Sometimes I wear it and I go, do I look too good? I don't want to be at this peak level of awesomeness in their joggers every single day. This is going to be hard to maintain, but that's what the joggers do for you. Whether you're sort of business cash, whether you're just around the house, whether you're working out, whether you're getting on a plane and you're going to be in your seat for a long time, the joggers just give you a hug for the entire flight. It's soft. It's comfortable. You're never going to want to take them off. Incredible versatility. You can wear it while taking part in different kinds of exercises, running, training, swimming, yoga, and more. Viore yoga class, that just makes sense. The Sunday jogger is the number one go-to. And of course, the core short out now. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's dot icom slash Ryan.
2: With the 17th pick, the uh, New England
3: Patriots
4: have selected Damian Woody, Center Boston College.
3: So, Mel, in
0: short, the Patriots have a Woody.
1: That is one of the all-time underrated Berman uh, quotes on the draft set. Damian Woody joins us now. Three teams. New England originally Detroit and the Jets, over twelve years. Damian, I remember that pick well now. Yeah, over twenty years ago. That was a Bobby Greer selection, right?
0: That is, that's, career, that's correct. That's correct. BG is what what I what, what we used to call them. That's right because it was you and um, was it you and Katzenmoyer?
1: Yeah, <laughs> Katzenmoyer <laughs> and went twenty eighth. Yeah, yeah, me and Big Cat. I I'm ashamed to say more of my buddies bought Katzenmoyer jerseys. Than Damian Woody jerseys because they were so no,
0: excited. Yeah, nobody like who? Who the hell is Damian Woody? Like nobody knew that. Like a center from Boston College. Yeah, so I can understand that.
1: Well, it worked out, and and our man yeah. was uh, was an incredible offensive lineman. Could basically play every single position up there. What's your favorite story from the the pre-draft, the draft, whatever it is? Take us through it.
0: Yeah, man, I, I was, I was, I'm going to go with. Um, my pre-draft visit, my last one was with the Pats. Um, I came with Kevin Falk, who we, had, we, you know, we were teammates. We got drafted the same year, and um, and so I'm sitting, I'm I'm meeting with Dante Skarnikia, Um, in my opinion, it's Hall of Fame offensive line coach, and I'm sitting there. He pops on the tape of the game I had against Syracuse. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking oh, man, we're going to watch some games. I'm going to watch a game, you know, against Notre Dame. You know, games, I just balled. Man, he popped on that Syracuse game, and I'm like, damn! Like, that was by far my worst game of my collegiate career. And we sat there for, like, almost four hours and watched every single play. And he just critiqued it and asked me, well, what did you do on this play? Well, what did you do on this play? And... I felt so shitty <laughs> watching that game and, and and after after that visit I'm, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to the Patriots after that watching that game, no way I'm going to the Patriots. Fast forward lo and behold, Patriots trade up with the Seattle Seahawks, and I ended up getting drafted and uh, and then my when I went to um, back to Boston um, for my introductory press conference. Dante told me he said I just want to see how you how you will react see if you were coachable you pass for flying colors
1: yeah Skarniecki is the best um I don't what is it about him what is it about him that makes him so good at
0: this job <laughs> well first of all he's like this really short Italian guy that and he just barks and cusses you like like crazy but he just he's relentless on the details he doesn't let anything slide your footwork could be off by a little bit he's pouncing on it your hands could be off he's pouncing on it and that's really what great teachers do like great all the great coaches I've ever been around they're sticklers on the details and Dante was probably you know probably number one as far as coaches I've been around being on the details man and And uh, that really set the foundation for the rest of my career.
1: Was there anywhere else you thought you were going to go or that you wanted? I bet you didn't even want to play in New England.
0: Uh, I'm just like, New England. Like I'm thinking, I was thinking like Baltimore. um, I was thinking Baltimore or the Chargers. And then I got hit with New England. I'm like, okay, New England. I didn't see that one coming, but. All right, let's let's get let's get up and go. And, but the cra- another thing was, I had, was partying with the my draft night. I got drafted, party with OutKast. Wait, how did that happen? You let I mean we burying the lead here. <laughs> yeah, so I went to an Outcast concert at University of Virginia after I got drafted, and um, so some people at, at UVA caught wind that I was there. Me and my like me and my guys from BC and so they invited us on stage when they were doing a were doing that concert and then we were hanging with them backstage and then off campus and um i was wasted just totally totally wasted <laughs> and um and i was wasted the next day i had a severe hangover when i met with the patriots but i'm i'm just to this day i'm just thinking to myself how did i not screw that up because i could have easily like screwed it up there's no way that mr craved didn't know i like, I reeked of alcohol, you know, when I did my press conference. Did anyone so, say you smell like a fucking brewery yeah, or anything? Big Cat. Big Cat was like, we were standing on stage with, with, uh, with Pete Carroll and Mr. Kraft, and, and uh, Big Cat's like, dude, you really, you really party last night. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, I went a little overboard last night, but I'm here. I'm Are late. you talking Big Cat, like, like the defensive lineman? No, I'm talking about I, like I've called Andy Cashmore a big cat. Oh, like, you called, okay, all right, because we've yeah, lo- I've yeah, lost I've lost track him. of all
1: the big cats. So Cats and Moyer is Andy, telling yeah.
0: you you you're hungover. Yeah, think <laughs> about that. Like Andy Cashmore is telling me, like, dude, you are like wasted. Like you reek of alcohol. You're wasted. So yeah, it was uh it was pretty bad. But you know, that just comes with the territory, I guess.
1: Did I ask you about this Cats and Moyer story? That at the end of the year, he threw a party, but he didn't, inv- he didn't tell anyone where it was. So he, inv- he rented out a place and it, it was by himself because he forgot to tell everyone is that, no, what, what no, was you that?
0: <laughs> you didn't tell me that.
1: <laughs> you
0: didn't tell me this. <laughs> There's one. some
1: story. Cause I remember my buddies in Boston because we had graduated, but I was still in Vermont. So I'm, you know, you're a couple of years younger behind, behind me, but I remember this story, and I don't even know if it's true, so I'm not claiming that it's true. But the Cats and had rented out like an Abe and Louise for an end of the season party, but he fucking forgot to tell everyone. So he showed up. I was like, <laughs> no one showed up, and they were like, well, because no one knew.
0: You, you know what? I, I don't, don't know if it's true that one or not. bit. I don't. I don't. I, I wouldn't. I don't know if it's true, but I wouldn't dispute it one bit because that sounds like some that sounds like some mess Cats and would do. Anyone who knows Andy, like, yeah, I could see that happen.
1: Just think of all the Ohio State fans that have lightning bolt tattoos around their biceps. They're 40 right now
0: going,
1: uh. <laughs> <laughs> and- all right, Woody, you're the man. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no problem, man.
1: Before Danny Connell was my ESPN Radio co-host, he was the 30th pick in the fourth round of the 1996 draft by the New York Giants. He was ACC Player of the Year at Florida State. He knew he wasn't going to be a first-rounder, but he definitely thought he was going somewhere, and he didn't go there. All right, Danny, let's start with this. Give me your best draft day story.
2: It was better when you introduced me as the 130th pick, because then it doesn't sound like almost in the fifth round, Canal. I, I know, I forgot that. 130 so- does sound better. It does. Um, so my draft experience was completely different than most of the stories that you hear because most of them are these feel good stories where, you know, Hey, when is your name called? you get to go up and hug the commissioner and you're there with your family or at your draft party? Uh, so mine was completely different. So I had been hearing all kinds of different projections and was trying to block them out, but it's literally impossible to do that because you get excited. You're like, hey, I could be a potentially a second round pick, which I, that's probably the highest I heard. I knew I wasn't going to be a first round pick. But even in the back of your mind, you're kind of like, maybe maybe last couple picks, I'll sneak in there as a project. But like second round was starting to hear that, third round. So I kind of thought I was going to be a second or a third round pick. Um, that was the expectation. So at the time, it's Saturday. It's not, not Thursday prime time. It's not Friday prime It's Saturday is the first round, and it starts at noon, I believe, was what time it started. So I had this expectation. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to go out and golf with my brother-in-laws and a buddy of mine. So I'm going to go play some golf. I did have the, uh, the flip phone, the old-school flip phone cell phone, just in case there was that call in the first round or some team had to inquire about something, what my availability was. So I brought it with me went out and played golf, got home about 1230. It's probably on round, uh, probably about pick 15 or so in the first round and no phone ring. My dad's watching the draft. Nothing's happened. So then I get like, okay, let's get comfortable. Let's see what happens. And at the time, it was rounds one through three uh, that are all on Saturday and then four through seven are on Sunday. So getting comfortable, you know, coming back, have some lunch, watching the uh, draft unfold, pretty entertaining. You're seeing all these uh, players go. And then, second round starts coming along and I felt like I was one of the top quarterbacks in the draft. Like it wasn't, and trust me, that is not uh, a cocky statement. There wasn't that many good quarterbacks in that draft. It's documented as one of the worst quarterback uh, talented drafts in the history. So Tony Banks gets taken. I'm like, all right. Like I hadn't really heard a lot about him, but he gets drafted. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. Then there gets to be some other quarterbacks that start getting taken and more importantly, they're going to teams that I thought I had a chance to go to. So Denver Broncos would have been perfect for me. Would have loved to have gone and backed up Jan, John Elway for a couple of years, watch him ride off on the sunset. Perfect spot. They draft Jeff Lewis. I'm like, who? Like I had, literally had no idea who Jeff <laughs> Lewis was. Played at Northern Arizona. And I, I was like... I have no idea who this guy is. So I was like, well, that's kind of a bummer. Miami Dolphins come up. And Miami Dolphins, now my dad worked for them at the time. He was their uh, orthopedic surgeon, their team doctor. And so I was kind of excited about that opportunity. They did bring me in for an official, uh, you know, come to the facility. They put me up at a hotel. You meet the coaching staff. So they had expressed more interest than a lot of teams. So I was like, man, maybe there's a chance. Another team, back up Dan Marino, that would be incredible. So they're starting to—they're de- picking defensive players. They're picking other, you know, needs that they've got. Um, other drafts co- start to come through. I, I'm pretty sure you might have it there. I think Bobby Hoyne gets taken in front of me uh, from Ohio State. We had played in the Senior Bowl together, so I knew him pretty well. And I was like, man, I think I'm better than him, but you never know. I'm like, all right, that's fair. He gets drafted from the Philadelphia Eagles. So I'm like, all right. And so it's starting to get third round, you know. And I'm thinking, okay, are we going to go? And it's getting later in the day on Saturday. And basically so you're sitting in, ha- by
1: the way, just, just to jump in, you're sitting yeah. watching all of it. Cause you, oh, yeah. like,
2: yes, the ego of the athlete
1: is like, maybe something weird happens. I go in the first, okay, Absolutely. but you're, you're right. I mean, it's an atrocious, atrocious class. Banks goes 42nd overall. Hoyne goes in the third round of the Eagles. Jeff Lewis goes 30 picks in front of you to Denver, still a fourth round pick. The guys after you, Spence Fisher, Mike Colley, John Stark, Kyle Watchholtz, none of them <laughs> even play in games. No. Um, it's it like I kind of forgot, but ninety six like it was almost like if you didn't have a QB in the draft, yeah. God, the, your evaluation. No offense, it must have been even worse than we'd imagined because just <laughs> by the lack of depth, you would have thought you would have gone higher. Right, so, exactly. so you're watching every day, going, "What is going?" Like, when did you first
2: start getting mad? Third round, and when it, it was probably the Jeff Lewis pick, like that was the one again where I was like, "I don't know who this guy is. I had never seen him play," and it's like it's just. At the time, you didn't get so many games of college football. You didn't have so much coverage. You didn't get the, you know, the, the consistent 24-7 coverage where you just saw everybody. So I didn't know who he was. I'm like, all right, that's kind of annoying. I'm like calling my agent, having some contact with him. And more importantly, it was who he went to. Because I was like, that's a team that I thought I had a chance to go to to be the heir apparent to John Elway. And I didn't want to play right away. Like, I knew I needed time. No, I know. I, I tell I only, people
1: all the time, you're yeah. the only pro athlete I've ever met that never wanted to play.
2: But it wasn't – it wasn't not – not not wanted to play i didn't want to play right away like i knew i wasn't ready (laughs) i'd only played two years of college and only played two years of high school you were so so jealous of garoppolo you were like why would he leave you could just stay there another five years it's still chase daniel like that one still bothers me the most more than anybody is chase daniel's career because he still hasn't played like he's still getting paid and he never played Um, high ceiling no idea great guy great locker room guy so that then it's like calling my agent like hey are you hearing anything and he's like no but just be patient you know it'll happen um and so basically the whole (laughs) yeah exactly so then the whole the whole round ends and you know my family was there my dad was there my sisters were there my brother-in-laws maybe did you have a girlfriend at the time i did i did were you um, thinking if you had gone in the second round
1: you were going to break up with her immediately did you know
2: no, no, I did not know. This was my eventual fiance, but then we called. This was... That's a whole other story. Oh, that's the that one you, you bailed about. on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bailed on before the wedding, five days before. Good stuff. Um, but she was there. It's know, like you brought business. her
1: in for a visit and didn't draft her. <laughs> yes,
2: exactly. So essentially it goes and it was a little bit of a moment of shock. Like it, it hits you when the round closes. And it's like, all right, you know, Berman's up there. We'll see you tomorrow. Back here to go at fourth round. And I literally... Started to get a little bit nervous, like maybe I don't get an opportunity, maybe I don't play in the NFL. Literally, I swear to you, I had that conversation with my dad, and my dad, who's been my biggest supporter, most optimistic person ever, he's like, Well, screw the NFL, they don't deserve you. You know, you can go play baseball. Literally, he was oh, like, Oh, that's Dude. right, yeah, yeah. I mean, literally, but that was like, a, that was on the table, was maybe you can try baseball if it doesn't work out. That was the mindset going to sleep, like maybe I don't ever play in the NFL again. I was down, I was bummed. <laughs> Jeff Lewis, again, never heard of him. Um, so go to bed. And then my my agent again, he's like, be patient. He's like, I'm sure, you know, some teams will start expressing interest. And then I'm watching the fourth round. The fourth round is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. As you mentioned, it was the 30th pick in the fourth round. And it's, it's again, that, that kind of, that doubt is starting to creep in. And then the, and then all of a sudden the phone rings and there's the excitement. It's, Hey, the New York Giants are on the phone. And the thing that's odd about the New York Giants is I had, spent extra time at the combine with the Broncos with, and I had been taking a visit to the dolphins. There were a couple of um, John Gruden. They were in the market for a quarterback. I met with him at the combine. Um, a bunch of these other teams I had spent a lot of time with. The only thing I did with the New York giants was take this standardized 400 question psychological evaluation that every player does. And that was it. Like I didn't talk to any coaches, no coordinators, no quarterback coach, not Dan Reeves, anybody. So I, it was a complete shock to me. But I get the phone, I'm pumped, I don't care who it is at this point. The secretary comes on, she said, hold on, I got Dan Reeves on the line for you. And he came on, he said, you know, Danny he said, congratulations, we've drafted you. And uh, he had like a, a, he's like a friend of your family's, was a friend of mine, and I'm thinking, I'm, there's, everything's spinning at that time. And then it goes, all right, we'll get you up here, you know, get a flight, and get you up here, and we'll get you into camp. And it was kind of off to the races. But the biggest shock to me was the lack of interest that the Giants showed in me the entire lead up to the process. And I turned out. It turned out after the fact. I found out this later. George Young, the you know uh, legendary Hall of Fame general manager for the uh, New York Giants at the time, and Ernie Accorsi, the assistant GM, were in a fight with Dan Reeves. Dan Reeves didn't want me. He did not want another quarterback because he was in love with Tommy Maddox. Remember, he drafted Tommy Maddox with the Broncos, brought him to the Giants. He was still on the roster, hadn't played very well, and. Young and Acorsi were like, no, no, no. We see value in Cannell. We want to bring him in here. And I think Dan Reeves was pissed when he got like when he when he had to take me. I didn't find this out till later, much later. You know, after probably a year or two, I was on the Giants. But that was the environment that I went into. And at that, and then it was a, a complete whirlwind. Like you, all of a sudden, you get the you get the draft, you get the call, and then you're on a plane. You're getting your playbook. You're in camp, and then it just flies. It flies by. But that was, the, that was the nature of my draft experience. So completely different than anybody else's where I was just wondering if I was ever going to get a chance.
1: By the way, the Dan Reeves note is incredible because I'm looking at this and he got stuck with you twice. So after <laughs> a rookie year, he was out and they brought Jim Fossil and then
2: you ended up... So who knows? Well, like, I that's won why him you, over. That's, Oh, you have, won you him know, over? I no, I, I for no, I you're, I know you're thinking I'm joking. <laughs> so I get there, he doesn't want me, um, but I end up beating out Tommy Maddox for the backup job, and they cut Tommy Maddox, so they got rid of him. So I, I did, and that was Dan Reeves' decision. So I did win him over, and I remember he gave a he gave a quote to the New York media that said, "I've never seen a quarterback pick up a system as fast as Cannell since John Elway." And I was like, oh, okay, sweet. Like, this was awesome. it true? No, I had no idea what I was doing. Unless John Elway wasn't very, like, into, the, unless he didn't have that much of a grasp of the offense when he was young. But I did play a lot my rookie season. Dave Brown was struggling. Like, I threw him a couple touchdown passes. Dave Brown was struggling. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, Dave, Dave's my, bot, my guy. But he was struggling. And so, like, I played a lot. And I and Reeves did like me, like he did, like he liked me. You know, he liked me as a person. He liked me as a player. So he actually did. It made a lot of sense because the system was there, and he wanted a quarterback to come back up. Chris Chandler. So it made a lot of sense. So we actually that was that was his decision to bring me to Atlanta, which was good. All right, that's perfect. There was good looking girls in Atlanta too, so it fit for me too. (laughs) Even better. That had that definitely won Reeves over. Yep, and that's definitely why my career was the way it was.
3: The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have uh, made the sixth pick in the first round, and they've selected Trent Dilfer, quarterback, Fresno State. Well, they took their time, didn't they? But the Buccaneers have gotten their man, Trent Dilfer, from Fresno State.
1: So for those that only know Trent from television, uh, or maybe the guy that won a Super Bowl with the Ravens, you have to be reminded that Trent was the sixth overall pick in 1994. He was that big of a deal. The guys that went ahead of him, Dan Big Cat Wilkinson, Marshall Falk, Heath Shuler, Willie McGinnis, Trev Alberts, and Trent Dilfer. So we're going to start here, Trent. What's your best draft day story?
4: you right, two quick ones. Number one, I didn't go to the Colts because my agent told them I would sit out the year and I would be, didn't be the, the Panthers' first pick in their first year. Um, so that was the whole Mel Kuyper general manager argument on ESPN that gets shown every year. They couldn't pick me at five instead of Trevor Alberts because we said I wouldn't play. So I always try to um, defend the Colts that way Um, And I regret it because I could have played for Marshall. I've played with Marshall for a long time. Uh, So that's one kind of subplot. The bigger one to me was the night before the draft, I was told by the Redskins that I was going number three, that they had done all their work. I was going to go three. Uh, I was their guy. They knew Big Daddy would go one. Everybody knew Marshall would go two, the Colts. So those were kind of locked in. That third pick was really the one that Heath and I, who I'd become friends with Heath, we were both trying to get to the Redskins because we both really liked Norm Turner. Uh, through the draft process and cam cameron was the quarterback coach then charlie cashley was the gm um so my wife had met some in our in the draft process had met um some players and players wives for the redskins and had just fallen in love with the redskins she already looked at homes she had already like she was all in they we're going to the redskins the night before the draft they tell us we're going it's you know seeing kumbaya it's all good baby we're going three Third pick comes up, it's Heath Shuler. We're on the floor in New York. Now, it was different back then. This is 1994. Kind of the families would sit off to the side and just fold up chairs off to the side of the stage. And when they picked Heath, she starts crying. And I'm sitting there. My heart was racing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what just happened? Obviously, we were lied to. Well, she's melting down. And like all of our family members, like cameras are coming. You can't show Trent's wife crying because he didn't go to Washington. So there's was this big scramble to kind of get her off to the side so nobody would see her crying. But that, that was kind of the most dramatic part of the day. We knew we wouldn't go five to, to uh, Indianapolis because of the agent uh, conflict there. And then uh, Tampa at six was a natural fit after that. Did you want to
1: go to the Colts or did the agent at the time, like, were you on the same page?
4: I didn't know. You know, and that's what a lot of these kids struggle with is, you know, there's a lot of history between agents and GMs. There's a lot of um, opinions on the direction franchises are going to go. And uh, you're kind of you you kind of have to trust them. And at the time, and I have nothing bad to say about my agent at the time, Mike Solomon, he was a great agent. Um, but he was convinced that the Colts were going nowhere, that this was a bad situation to be in. Uh, even with Marshall going to be there, it wasn't enough um and he was convinced that that was a bad spot and convinced me and my family that that would not be the best spot for us and that Tampa would be better one pick later so uh i was i liked north um we had some mutual friends so i i, I kind of wanted to go to the redskins but also really had enjoyed sam white in my draft process and and figured Tampa would be a good fit and uh you know you're an egomaniac at the time so you know you think you can fix everything and i and i figured i can go fix Tampa uh that didn't that didn't happen. But uh, you know, at the time you're thinking, well, I can go anywhere, I'll make the best out of anything.
1: Why did Washington lie to you then?
4: I don't know. I played for Norv later. He said they had a change of heart the last second the next morning. It was very close between me and Heath uh in their draft process. I mean, all the metrics they did, all the testing, everything they evaluated, they felt like it was either or. Um, I think it was more of a gut feel thing by Norv. Um, Norv's still a very good friend, so I don't hold anything over his head with it, but uh um, for whatever reason, they woke up that morning and, and I've never gotten, I've never gotten final word who actually made the decision, but their decision changed that morning.
1: I can't believe you've never found out since then. That's crazy. Cause we had Heath Schuler in studio and I made the mistake of, you know, whenever you had somebody who came in that just kind of flamed out mm-hmm. and I think bust versus injured are two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I would never call anybody a bust, uh, in that setting. But I, I basically was kind of doing like, hey, you know, when you look back on it, like, do you think about what went wrong? And he's like, well, you know, if you have your foot broken into a million pieces, you're probably going to. I was like, oh, I'm like, OK, I'm like, here we go. And I didn't know if it was fair or not to be like, is it only the foot or were you not good enough? You know, you go third overall and the way it works, too. I mean, most people, you're the high pick. It doesn't work out. Um but I, you know, like Sam Bowie came by and I was like, you know, the thing that sucks for you is you just straight up were never healthy. Like to me, Greg Oden was just never healthy, at least the basketball examples. But Heath was it gave me a look like it's only because I was hurt. And I think other people would argue that it might not, it, it might not work out if you were healthy.
4: Yeah, who knows? I mean, I'm so thankful. I mean, again, I've said this in the show. I was the worst player in football my second year. So after, I think I started three games. Maybe you'd have to check my stats. I really don't remember how many games I started my rookie year. And then my second game, my second year, I started all 16.
1: You were in five. You started two.
4: Yeah. Okay. Um, So 18 starts into my NFL career. I'm the worst quarterback in football by far. It's not even an argument. Um, And then Tony comes in, stabilizes the situation in Tampa. But then we're one in seven, I think, my third year. Um, and he didn't quit on me, you know, and, and then we ended up finishing really strong my third year and the fourth year is a year. We turned it all around. I go to the pro bowl. We have eight guys go to the pro bowl. You know, we win a playoff game, um, yada, yada, yada. So, uh, it it does take back then, especially it took some time. I I think it takes less time now because the amount of throws kids have in high school, college, they've just played quarterback more. They've been more exposed to the position. Uh, I do think the game's way easier to play now, too, as a quarterback. I mean, astronomically easier um, just because all the give me throws and all the schemes, and all the um, innovation offensively. Um, but, you know, with a guy like Keith, he was talented and he was a tough guy and he was a good leader. I mean, I, I got to know him well during the draft process and and I thought he would be a success. Um, maybe it was injury. You just back then you guys needed three, four years before you really knew who they were going to be
1: normally a quarterback that starts off with a 17 to 43 touchdown to pick ratio does not get the fourth year and then you're that good
4: was it that good
1: one touchdown six picks you had an interception percentage i don't think i've ever seen a number this high where seven percent of your throws are picks yeah big Um, number then the second year you started all 16 four touchdowns 18 picks jesus man Thank God it wasn't first take era then. Oh, I know. Stephen A would have just been free. And then when you got to your job back in the third year, 12 touchdowns, 19 picks, they would have lost their minds that you were still the starter.
4: No, it was crazy. I mean, and you had even back then you had, you know, players. I remember, I remember like Hardy Nickerson and John Lynch and, you know, guys like that that were like, wait a second, how, how is he still the guy? Um, and I felt it, you know, I knew I wasn't, but I, it clicked the middle of my third year. Um, it was really the middle of my third year where I kind of had the aha. Okay. I see why it's been so, so bad. Uh, and I know how to fix it. Um, and then fixing it, uh, stabilized everything. And then it really was trying to build on top of that after, but it goes back. I was doing calling earlier today and we we're talking about the hits that Burroughs taking. And my fear isn't the physical stuff, it's the mental stuff, it's the confidence. Because I can go back in my situation, I've talked to other quarterbacks that have been through this too, that they start losing trust in the system, the personnel in front of them. Well, then they lose trust in themselves. And that's really what happened to me. I went from being a Heisman Trophy candidate and playing with all the confidence in the world to shattered confidence because I wasn't believing in the things around me. And it was affecting me. So that's why I've always been over the past, you know, I think it's now 11 years we've been talking through these. Do you play them earlier? Do you not play them early? I've always been on the conservative side of don't play the quarterbacks early um, because if anything, you raise the floor. I, your ceiling might be the same if you play early or sit early, but I think your floor is guaranteed to be, guaranteed to be higher if you don't play earlier because you can learn from other people's mistakes. You can let other people have the scar tissue You can let other people lose their confidence, and you're not affected by it. Thank you, Trent. You got it, buddy.
1: Dr. J, Julius Irving, one of the most important basketball players of the modern generation, has a much more complicated beginning to his NBA story. He was drafted by a team that didn't sign him, and he was signed by a team that hadn't drafted him. So Julius Irving joins us now for his draft day story. Explain to us how you showed up to play in Atlanta, but the Bucks had your rights because of Wayne Embry.
0: Yeah, so this was after my first year in Virginia. After, after my rookie year, um, I signed with Atlanta. I get a bonus, you know, quarter million dollars, get a car, get an apartment. And uh, get a five-year contract. And the draft is in June. I signed his contract in May. I'm like, this is better than the one I have. My agent, you know, guys listen to the agents in those days. He said, this is the right thing to do. And actually, in retrospect, it's probably not the right thing to do. But what he said it was the right thing to do. So so I did it. And um, as it turned out, uh, I go to camp. In Atlanta, Cotton Fitzsimmons is coaching. So now you got me, Pistol Pete, and you got uh, Walt Bellamy, and you got Lou Hudson. So, you know, you got four guys who are Hall of Famers who would have been teammates uh, for a five year stretch. So who knows what would have happened to the NBA. So, as it turned out, we play Houston two exhibition games, and um, and we run up, you know, we're scoring 145, 150 points (laughs) offensively had given up maybe 130, 135. It was just run and gun up and down. And after those two games, uh, there was a complaint. And it was a complaint that uh, if Atlanta continued to play me, that they would be fined. And uh, it went to arbitration because at the draft, as it turned out, Atlanta had, you know, I think they had the fifth pick in the draft or maybe the third pick in the draft. And they drafted Steve Bracey, who was a guard. And um, and Milwaukee had the 12th pick, and Milwaukee picked me because I had a history with Wayne Embry from camp when I was Well, didn't 15.
1: you beat him in camp when you were in high school or something?
0: I, mean, I beat him in a palming contest, you know? <laughs> They will say you beat Wayne Embry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh modesty comes back to play. But you know, he called me out of a crowd and I came up, he was like, Yeah, man, you got a big hand, blah, blah, blah. And so on and so forth. But I'm fifteen, sixteen years old. And uh and he just remembered it. I, I stayed in his mind and he drafts me with that with that twelfth pick. So if they allowed me to play for Atlanta, they would have been Milwaukee would have been wasting their pick. And Atlanta should have drafted me with their earlier picks, but they didn't. And they cried foul and said, uh, well, we got this player under contract, so you can't draft him. And they said, we'll see. And as it turned out, uh, the ruling went against the Hawks. And if I was going to play in the NBA, I would have to go to Milwaukee uh, immediately and, and forget about Atlanta. So I went back to the ABA, as it turned out, I went back to Virginia, and then I played that second year. And Charlie and I were there the second year until he he disappeared and went back to Phoenix, and and we brought the Ice Man in <laughs> in my second year. So George Irving and I were teammates, and you know, I mean, both of them are Hall of Famers, and but they were they were both uh, great guys to have on your resume as teammates.
2: You want details? Fine.
4: I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's
2: possible. Let me
3: tell you what's required.
1: LifeAdviceRR at gmail.com. Okay, let's get a few in here. This one, I actually feel bad because when this guy's going to hear us talk about it and then the as the audience hears this, this is going to be so obvious that I don't need to go on one of my long deals and you know also tell stories in between. That's why they're long. because Usually, I'm just trying to equate things to other things and share stories with you guys because you seem to like it. Okay, big fan of Kyle as well. Shout out to Kyle. 35 years old. Live in Los Angeles with my wife. Two kids, both under three years old. I do pretty well making between 350 400k a year. Whoa. You saying I do pretty well and then throwing out that kind of number. Um and I it's just I know what you're saying cuz you live in Los Angeles, you're surrounded by other people that are like, "Hey, with how expensive everything is out here, um it's 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 a really really great living that you get to make that much money, but I also get why you said it that way. It's just that other people are going to read that and be like, "Are you kidding, dude? I'm doing pretty well." Like you're killing. All right? But I know what you're doing. And I'm just trying to explain it to everybody. All right. Uh, He says, my wife does not currently work, so I support the family, which I'm fine with. We were able to save a little and I can max out the 401k, et cetera. But as you know, LA is expensive. Rent, car payments, health insurance. So it's not like we were rolling in the dough. And some people would listen to this and go, how are you going to be kidding me? But I understand what you're saying. All right. My wife told me she wants, you know, I'm talking two cars, probably private school for the kids at some point in the whole deal. Like I get it. And then you're already putting money away for all the other stuff. My wife told me she wants to go back to work ASAP. She's in a line of work where she make around 35 to 40 K a year. The cost to send two kids to daycare in my neighborhood will be around 4,500 a month. So we're talking... 54 K a year after tax. So we'd essentially be paying for my wife to work. I've expressed my preference for her to stay at home with the kids as it makes more sense financially, but she says she will be more fulfilled working and happier. Question is, do I just eat the cost a couple of years to the kids are in public school and let her work be happier and more fulfilled? Or do I put my foot down? We could afford it, but it doesn't make sense financially. You let her work and just saying like, Hey, I'm letting you do something. This is a no-brainer. Um, as you mentioned your salary and yes, money coming in, money going out, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. And this is one of those transactions where you're going to be on the wrong side of it, but it's a couple of years of temporary. And you have to you have to simply switch roles here. If your wife were making that much money, 350, dollars a year. And you had aspirations. You had things you wanted to do. And she was saying to you, well, look, it just doesn't make any sense. We're going to lose about 15K plus a year on you working and doing something that you enjoy. We just can't do it. You'd freak the fuck out. I would. Um, or maybe you're so fiscally constraining that you just can't handle the math on this that it's a loss, that it's that's just a full-on loss by doing this. But what it isn't a loss is for your wife. It's the, your, your wife is going to feel fulfilled. She's going to start doing the things that she set out to do before she had to pause everything in her life to have kids for you and your family. So, um, I know it's a loss, but it's not some staggering loss. You know, it's not going to really impact your day to day or what you're, you know, available to do. You're not going to have to sit there and sell a car and all that kind of stuff or move. So she should be working if she wants to work. And I don't really think, um, you needed to send me an email for, for you to figure that one out. Um, unless you're you're one of those financial guys who's so strict about budgets and all that kind of stuff i would tell you in this case be less strict i can't i can't fathom telling your wife no actually i worked i ran the numbers you're going to be staying at home um so uh there you go okay hoops one here my wife and i both vaccinated cool um Oh, oh, oh! This is not a basketball one. This is a DJ music one. This is a good one. Cerute, Cerute and Kyle are like this, okay? And I didn't ask Kyle on that last one because I'm pretty sure Kyle not super worried about it. Um, yeah, don't don't make three hundred thousand dollars a year or have a wife. So, don't yeah, have much there to you say. Go. Yeah, and just the phrasing alone, Kyle. I didn't feel comfortable with that. Let, let Did, you didn't, let like, that didn't yeah. like that either. Didn't like that either. I know what he's doing. He's simply expressing it in an email. So I don't, I don't want our guy to feel like he's getting beat up on here. Okay, this is a really good one. My wife and I both vaccinated. Shout out. Okay, just happily started hosting other friends who are also vaccinated. I got invited to a birthday party, but it was like, hey, you have to be vaccinated for it. And I was like, wow. Okay, there you go. It's real, real warfare out there. All right, the vaccination has nothing to do with my question story. Just throwing it out there. Oh, so we don't get judged for not being safe. There you go. This is what we've come to anonymous emailers are making sure the audience knows that they've been vaccinated if they have a few people over to listen to music. Um, There's a couple who uh, we've really missed hanging out with. Let's call them Fred and Bonnie, They're 130 years old. Fred and Bonnie, who we invited uh, to come over last week along with another couple. It was really great to see them. And we had a great evening, except for one thing. And that's the thing that comes up in the past. But I just totally forgot about it. All right. So it used to happen. He forgot. and Now it happened again. Got it. Fred thinks it's completely OK to open up his Sonos app, hijack whatever music is playing on our sound system and put on his own personal playlist on our Sonos without asking us. I might let it go if there was new music playing uh, at the time. And Fred just wanted to get things started. But that's not the case. This started about two years ago when he came over and said, oh, you have to listen to this playlist. Like he had just discovered new land or a cure for the common cold. But it sounded like all he did was just play the last Lumineer station on Spotify. Two years later, Fred is still up to his old tricks. And guess what? It sounds like the same damn station every time. Nothing in his playlist has changed. Making matters worse on this visit, the woman from the couple went up to Fred at one point and said, great playlist." So now I'll look like an even bigger asshole if I change the music back or said something to Fred. My question is, do I say something to him the next time he's over? Do I casually change the music back to what my wife and I want? Or do we just let it go? I'm not sure it's worth starting any friction over. But at the same time, it's not often I use the word shitspa, And Fred is showing a lot of it. Yeah, that sucks, man. Um, now, look, there's always a version that maybe you could be wrong and Fred could be killing it. Um, But Fred's a music control freak. And we have people in our lives that are that way, you know, i mean, the attention span. Now you throw your phone down with a gathering and you're sitting at the kitchen Island. And if you, if you get a minute into a song, it's shocking. Uh, especially if, if, if girls are over fucking forget it, I've never heard it I've never heard a completed song at my house ever in, in, in a decade. So, um, it's really up to you and, and what you're able to handle. It seems like a weird thing to get mad at because it is like he's screwing it up. He's doing something you don't want him to do. It's your house. If you did it at his house, he would freak out, right? Maybe you should do that. Maybe that's the solution. Just start putting on Mastodon. Be like, you have to hear this, like especially this part right here. It's all based on nautical history, this one. So <laughs> I, would, uh, I would maybe switch it up on him and try to put together something, some real heat, though. You know, so maybe Mastodon wouldn't play. I wouldn't mind it, but I, I could see other people turning that down to a, to an adult party. Um, but you get the point. You could go back at him that way, but it's bothering you. So you know what you could do? You just a little yeah. warfare here where the next get-together, you actually put some time into it, put together a great playlist, tell everyone how excited you are about the playlist. Your wife is going to be like, I roll laughing. It'll be your little joke. It'll be kind of funny. Maybe you guys will, you know, rekindle, see that see that thing in each other that you liked and you're funny and you're, you're, you have this inside joke about this playlist that you put together. And then if he's like, oh, but I got to wait, then you just be like, hey, dude, Fred. Like, I, I made this playlist. Like, be a little stern, but fair. And yeah, I think that's the way to play it. You just, you tell him how excited you are about this playlist that you put together. So if he's still willing to just, just barge through the front doors of your musical taste, and and decided and like, OK, then he's just a bully. He's a music bully. And I'm going to kind of fight back here. But I, I think a turn the music off. Let's address the situation. Let's pull him aside. I would be playful in the way I would fuck with him about it instead of making it something where you it seems like, unfortunately, if you take it really seriously, then you end up looking like the asshole. And then he's going to start talking about you to the neighbors and the other people in the group. And then everybody's going to get a version of the story from Fred like, yeah, man, this guy's so protective of his music. Like, we're just putting on a playlist. You know what I mean? When you're like, okay, but that's not really what's happening. If you describe the story that way, yes, the host looks like the asshole, but that's not really what's happening. So I would kind of be playful and kind of go at him a little bit and be like, oh, wait, I only made it three songs in, Fred. That's a record for you. Or, hey, Fred, your wife cheats on you. Um, <laughs> you have a playlist for that? Something like that. Something casual. You know what I'm saying? Life advice, rr at gmail.com. Simmons and I on Sunday and we'll be back with part two and part three of Draft Day Stories in the next following weeks. So I hope you enjoy it. Please subscribe. Spread the word.